And life is full of those type of moments. There are those exhilarating moments in life. There's those vacation memories. There's wedding memories. There's friends. There's family. There's the birth of your children. There's the heartbreaks in life. There's the terrible relationships that we survive. There's the work stress memories. And there's the death of people that we love. Those moments are burnt in our memories. They will never go away. But there's one memory that is frozen time that we really need to examine these next five weeks. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we have a room of people like we'd have today and say, who's impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's everybody. We're all impacted by that moment in time. So this, mo this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at two very well-known followers of Jesus and how indecisiveness affected their lives. Indecisiveness. That's the emotion we're going to look at today. The first character, just to set it up, is one I guarantee you've heard. Uh, even if you are not a believer, I guarantee you've heard this name. Because if I were to say, name a couple of villains in the Bible, this name would come up. But just so you are thinking in terms of villains, I want to give you some survey results about villains that we're all familiar with. The first of all, uh, TV Guide did the number one TV villain of all time. You never guess who it was. Picture, please. J.R. Ewing. Now, those of you who were not born before 87, you don't know who he was, okay? Dallas years. Disney did a survey. The number one Disney villain of all time, Scar from The Lion King. And, of course, the number one movie villain of all time, Darth Vader. But if I were to ask you to name a couple of villains in the Bible... My guess is if I first of all said a woman, you would say, I hope you'd say Jezebel. She pretty much ranks up there, okay? And if I were to say a villain in the New Testament, my guess is Judas Iscariot would be right there. There's a wonderful book that I recommend, and it's called 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. It's just a great, thorough look at each one of these 12 disciples because you really need to see that Jesus took this remarkable group of diverse, really, uh, personalities and brought them together and ultimately changed the world. And he also brought into camp a man that he knew eventually was going to betray him, and his name was Judas Iscariot. Here's his bio. The name Judas means Jehovah leads. Isn't that interesting? Judas was the only disciple not from Galilee, and Judas became the treasure of the group. Now, just imagine you have 12 men. Somebody has to watch the money. My guess is that's somebody that you would trust. Am I right about that? I've been around guys enough to know you don't trust money with forgetful guys. You don't trust money with guys that are uh, impatient. And, for example, you notice Peter never touched the money, okay? There's a reason. Now, Judas, it's obvious that he earned trust among all these disciples Another thing I found interesting is here's a guy handling the money and you actually have a guy, Matthew, uh, as on the outside. He could have easily joined that group of disciples. Matthew could have joined in as a tax collector, but no, he assigned Judas to handle the money. In Psalms 41.9, it says this, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who has shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. 
See, we know about Judas early on. And we know what Judas was capable of doing. And so this morning, let's talk a little bit about him and turn over to John chapter 12. Because in John 12, you're going to see his entire life unfold in just a few verses. And you're going to see the true heart of this guy and the motives of this guy. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Now let me pause there. Lazarus lived. If you go to the previous chapter, remember what happened? Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. And now he's having a meal with Lazarus. How great would that meal be if you were Lazarus? Jesus has just brought you back to life, and now you're having this amazing meal with him. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead, here the dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among them, reclining at the table with them. And then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Some scholars think that she had kind of an intuition that something was going to happen to Jesus, and she was actually preparing him for death. That's a pretty powerful thought. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, ejected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. It's a wonder that they didn't catch this guy along the way, but he reveals his heart. So let's take a closer look at what's going on behind the scenes. First of all, don't lose sight of this powerful sacrifice of Mary, who uh, amazingly took this, it was, it was more like an alabaster uh, container, a square container, very decorated from what I understand. It says a pint, but it was more like 12 ounces. And this nard was actually more of an investment because this was priceless. And it was so concentrated that it would literally, uh, just a drop of it would just, it, just the aroma was amazing. The fact that she just took that entire uh, perfume base and just, uh, and some say that actually started with the head of Jesus into his hair, down to his feet, and that she took her hair and was applying it all over the feet of Jesus. Imagine how intimate that moment was of all those that are watching because this was the most valuable thing in her home. And in essence, what she's saying is the only thing that matters now is that I'm in the presence of the Savior of the world. That's all that matters. Can you imagine perfume that valuable? Well, I, I did a little research, a little crack research. I had some folks help me with this, trust me. These are some of the popular perfumes today, and this is what a pint of it would cost. Chanel, number five. 700 bucks for a pint of that stuff. Okay, you can tell Marie's got that. Okay, Eternity, 624. Flower Bomb. Anybody, raise your hand if you even know what that is. Never heard of it either. Okay, Flower Bomb, that's a bargain. $478 a pint. This is amazing. There's a French perfume, number two, Barquet Le Lamar, $6,800 an ounce. Now, in Kentucky, they pronounce that Bearcat Les Lamar, okay? <laughs> but guys, I've got some great news for you. Ready for this? 
you can get a pint of Brute, $22. There it is. <laughs> so there it is. I'm here to tell you, we read, like when we read this, we don't understand the impact of what's going on. It was estimated, it says a year's salary. It, it's estimated that would be somewhere around $10,000 in those times. So this was no small sacrifice. And everybody in the room realized that except Judas. And what, what a bogus comment to make. We could give this to the poor. Are you kidding me? You would give it to the poor. Pal, you'd put it in your pocket. I mean, you don't get it. Matter of fact, in verse 7, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus pretty much tells him, Judas, you're not getting it. The poor will always be with us. This has nothing to do. This is not a social statement. This is a sacrificial statement. Here's the obvious conclusion is things are not always as they appear. Judas now is revealing his heart. Even though he was able to honestly fool everybody in that room except Jesus, things are not always as they appear. Years ago, I had, um, really it was a privilege to go through the Holocaust Museum in D.C. And I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but it is one of the most humbling experiences that I have ever been through. I remember getting towards the end, and they actually had the little shoes of the children in this room. And I mean, it just breaks your heart. So I was going through the bookstore, and was just going through some books, and there was a book on Hitler. And I was flipping through this book, and I came across this really interesting picture. I want to show this. If we can show this picture. And what they did is they took this picture of Hitler with this little girl, and it became the promotional poster all over Germany to show the soft side of Adolf Hitler. And after they put out thousands and thousands of these posters, they had to recall the posters. There was a major mistake. I don't know if you can catch it in the picture. They came back later and said, Adolf, the little girl, the cute girl that we chose, she's Jewish. That probably isn't going to work well. Things are not always as they appear. And though Judas to the crowd may have looked like somebody who really had his act together, his heart was pretty dark. And after John 12, everything starts to unravel for Judas. In Matthew 27, we see that he makes his move. He sells Jesus out uh, for 30 pieces of silver. Again, the value of that today would be twelve dollars to $14,000. And then, of course, in Luke 22, we see this agonizing scene as he leads the soldiers straight to Jesus, and he wraps his arms around Jesus, and he actually kisses Jesus to identify that that is the man, and he's taken away. I can only imagine how everybody felt at that time to realize that when Jesus was there at the Last Supper and he basically laid the cards out, somebody's going to betray me, now it's all coming unraveled. This is Judas who is going to betray him. And then Judas did something at that point that is totally heart-wrenching. And I want you to understand that at this point in his life, this guy was so calculated, he made so many decisions. And now he really only had to make one decision. And yet he was paralyzed even to make one good decision. Decisions are hard. Being decisive is hard. The New York Times in 2011 ran an article called Decisive Fatigue that a lot of us do suffer from too many decisions. The average American makes 5 
5,000 decisions a day. 5,000. And how many of you this week had a few days that it was more like 10,000? Am I the only one? Okay, every day it's like decision, decision, decision. Okay, uh, there was a, a Florida State University, I love this experiment, and how, how decision-making can overload us. They brought two groups in and put them in two separate rooms. And the first group, they, they had a table out, and they laid, laid out items like a candle, a T-shirt, a, a nice um, pen, and they just simply started talking about those different items. And then they got feedback. Hey, what do you think about this type of T-shirt? What do you think about this candle? Smell it. What do you think about that candle? And they, they all said, oh, this is great. They gave them more information, and they said, now, just relax. They had soothing music playing. Just relax. The experiment will continue, but just, just calm down. The second group, just the opposite. They laid out a table, laid the exact items, but here's what was different. They said, at the end of this experiment, we're going to give you a gift, and the gift will be something to do with these items. So please, please decide which one of these you want. Wow, that changed it. Well, I don't know. And then they just amped it up. Well, the candle's nice. It's a hazelwood scent. Perhaps you'd like this scent. And, well, that's a nice pen, but on the street, who knows? It might be worth more. More decisions. And then after the same exact time in both rooms, they uh, went in the second part of the experiment. Here's what they did. Put your hand uh, in this bucket with ice and water, and we're just going to see who can stay in the longest. Guess what group overwhelmingly was able to leave their hand in the ice bucket? Group one. Why? Because they were relaxed. Uh, they could care less. They were going to get money for the experiment. The second group was already amped up because of all the decisions, and all they could think about is, get my hand out of the bucket, because I got a prize. Not sure which prize. I like the candle, maybe the pen. And they just went off on a tangent. And here was their conclusion. Overkill on decisions can actually affect your willpower. And you know what? I thought, I've been there, where you have an overabundance of decisions you have to make. And uh, you ever been uh, like one of those days, like tons and tons of decisions? I got to do this, got to do that. Get more calls, more decisions. And maybe that's the day you started your diet. You ever had one of those? What happens around lunch? I've earned this Big Mac, you know, so we just start eating. What, what, what happened with the willpower? It's because of an overload of decisions. Now, here's the thing with Judas. Right now, he only has one critical decision that he needs to make. And that decision is, you do whatever it takes, but you fall in front of Jesus Christ and you beg for forgiveness. No matter what it takes, you find a way to get in the presence of Christ and you reconcile that relationship because he will forgive you. But we all know that's not the decision that he made. Matter of fact, we all know in Matthew 27, the decision he made was to take his life. Now, I want to share something that is, is um, it's difficult to even talk about. But it's just something that, to be honest, when I came out of Bible college, I was not prepared for. And that is dealing with families that have lost somebody because of suicide. They have been the most heart-wrenching moments in my ministry. I think of uh, literally on my knees in the front yard of some good friends of ours with a husband and wife, and I don't mean crying, I mean weeping, emergency vehicles all around, and she's just crying at the top of her lungs. Is my dad in heaven or is my dad in hell? Why did he take his life? Because her husband actually was there and saw him kill himself. 
I remember sitting in the garage in a lawn chair um, with a couple that, honestly, we didn't know them well at all. They were uh, friends of ours because of uh, baseball, Little League. And she was like in shock. Like she, could bear, she was mumbling. And she said, I should have saw this coming. Uh, my dad was drinking all day. And uh, I wish, why didn't we stop him? And I said, well, exactly what happened? He said, he, he was going through a divorce, and he decided that life wasn't worth living, and neither was her life. He said he took her first, and then he killed himself. And my 15-year-old step uh, sister was there in the home to have to find all of this. And then I remember going into a living room. Uh, it was a foggy day. It was a January. It was just one of these just heavy days. And I, I go in, and here's a wife. And she said, uh, my husband, we found out, was going to file for bankruptcy, and he just didn't think he could handle what the community was going to think about him, and so he, he killed himself. About that time, her son came in. He's in his 20s, and I said, I'm, I'm not being rude. How did, how did he take his life? And she said, well, my son found him this morning. He hung himself in the barn. And I went outside, and there was actually a detective, and he said, uh, I hate these. Because I, I wish I could take a video of, from this point forward, what this does to a family. Because this is a side of it people don't think. There is this thought of, if I take my life, if I take my life, those around me, their lives will be better. And I can tell you, being on the other side of suicide, it is a wound that never goes away. It is an ache and a pain for a family that never, ever goes away. I mean, every time I read this story about Judas. When I was a kid, I used to get so mad at Judas, but I got to be honest, the more I read it, I'm like, oh man, Judas, if you just, if you just would have thrown yourself at the feet of Christ, I'm telling you, you could have been forgiven. You, it was right there. I know what you thought you did was unforgivable, but it's not. And I know there may be somebody in this room, and you may have thoughts like, is my life even worth living? I want to beg you, your life is worth living. You matter to God. He loves you so much. All he wants you to do is go to him. Just say, God, I don't know what else to do. And he's just saying, just throw yourself to me. I am there for you. I beg you because I'm telling you, I have seen the other side. At times when life seems hopeless, through Jesus Christ, you have hope. And for everybody here, I want all of us to be aware of the deep depression that some people face. And that there are probably people in your life right now that are having thoughts of, is my life worth living? Pray that you will be alert. Because I'm telling you, there are folks that they are feeling that way. And they need to know through us that there's hope in Jesus Christ. My kids had this amazing Sunday school teacher in Illinois, and her name was Gladys Litterly. Now, Gladys had a hard life. An alcoholic husband, borderline abusive husband. Uh, and she had a daughter uh, when she was in her 20s, had a, a bad relationship, and one day she just took her life. And honestly, sometimes I wondered how Gladys could be as loving as she was. She loved on our kids. All those kids in her Sunday school, they were her kids. All my kids, I'd say, who's your favorite Sunday school teacher? I didn't even have to, oh, that's Gladys literally. Why? Oh, I don't know why. Well, I know why. Because there was this love of Christ that just came out of her. And one day she came up to me, she was crying, and she said, 
I got to tell you what happened this week. She said, I was in the store. My husband was like, then get Gladys, quit talking, get in there, get out. And she said, I got in there, and then I looked down the aisle with the cards, and she said, I just saw this woman standing there, and she was looking at the cards, the sympathy cards, where she had lost a loved one, and I knew that. And so I glanced, and I saw my husband in the car about ready to hit the horn. You know how we are, guys. And I looked back down the aisle, and I felt God saying, you need to go talk to that woman. And she went over, stood by the woman, and she said, I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know that you can get through this. And the woman just started crying and actually wrapped her arms around Gladys, and she said, I miss her so much. And Gladys said, I, I know, trust me, I know what you're going through. And Gladys said, I'm going to give you my name, and I'm going to give you my address, and I'm going to sit at my kitchen table this entire afternoon, and you come talk to me. Then she got in the car. About an hour later, here comes this woman. And the woman said, now this is amazing, she said, do you think God sends angels? Gladys said, absolutely. And she said, I just want you to know the reason I was standing there for so long, I didn't think life was worth living, and I was just about ready to end my life. Gladys said, what do you think about that? I said, Gladys, I've got to preach. I can't believe you're doing this to me, you know. And I just gave her this big hug. I said, man, there are angels, and we are part of God's angels. Folks, I'm just telling you, there is so much hurt out there, and we need to be aware of that. There's another well-known follower of Jesus, and he too had a tough decision. And, of course, his name is Peter. You know the story well. At the Last Supper, Jesus gathers Peter in, and Peter's just so humble because Jesus has washed his feet. And then what happens? He is so just filled with the love of Christ. He's like, I will die for you. And, and at that moment, he would. But Jesus said, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. You're going to know that because basically a rooster is going to crow three times. You're going to know. Peter's like, I would never, I would never deny you. Within 24 hours, he denied Jesus. Isn't it amazing what we can do against Jesus in a 24-hour period of time? All of us are capable of drifting so far. And there's a heart-wrenching story that we pick up in Luke 22 as he stands outside, and in the court there's a fire, and he's over that fire warming his hands, and one by one different people say, wait a second, I recognize you. You're a follower of Jesus. No, I'm not a, no, no, you know, denial number one. Denial number two, if you read all the Gospels, they each kind of give a little bit more color. He gets accused again, basically, and he loses it. Man, he just starts swearing to prove, how, how could I be a follower of him? And then he just loses it. And then by the time he denies him the third time, this is the one that, can you imagine this? He looks up and actually there's Jesus and their eyes meet. Now, you know, at that moment, what would you call that? You know what that is? That's betrayal. Isn't it interesting that we look at Judas and say, now he betrayed Jesus. Now Peter, no, no, no. Let's not whitewash this. He just betrayed Jesus. I don't know what your definition of betrayal is. That's betrayal. When the Heavenly Father says, you're going to deny me three times, and you deny that you're going to do that, and then all of a sudden you do exactly what he said you wouldn't do, and you do it with just swearing, and you're doing everything in your power 
to break that relationship. That is betrayal. And at that moment, he had a decision to make. It's the same decision all of us have to make. When we walk away from Jesus Christ, are we willing to walk back to Jesus Christ? Because it's not, will you ever deny Jesus? Will you ever let Jesus down? You will, and I will. And we have to make that decision. Lord, I'm coming back. Man, I'm coming back to you. Do you know how hard that had to be for Peter to actually go back to Jesus? I can't imagine that. But then the most remarkable thing happens, and I want you to turn over to John chapter 21, because this is one of the most beautiful things that Jesus ever did. After the resurrection, they said that, that Jesus appeared two other times for the disciples. This is the third time. But this is so Jesus. This is so Jesus, the way he does this. He goes back to the very beginning. You remember how he chose those first disciples? What was their occupation? They were fishermen. And so he's going to go where he knows they're at. That is just like Jesus. And he goes to where they're at, and they're out there fishing, and they've been fishing all night. This is the one thing they know how to do really well, and they, they haven't caught any fish. And, you know, when people say, does Jesus have a sense of humor? Absolutely. This is funny stuff. Jesus, hey, throw the net on the other side. You know, they're thinking, who is that guy? You know, and then it, it says John identifies, said, whoa, man, that's Jesus. And isn't this just like Peter? Everybody else is like, let's row the boat. No, 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 Peter's out of the boat. You're trying to run in water, except you got a dress on. You know, he's like doing everything he can. You know, he's clogging. Now, here's where... Jesus set this whole thing up for Peter. I really believe this. Peter runs up on the shore, and you can just see the sand, and the, he's just drenched, and there's Jesus. Hey, got some fish. Bring that fish in. Got a big catch. You know, yeah, and Peter's all excited. And the, he looks. You got to know how excited he was to spend some time with Jesus before the other guys got there. And just as he gets close to Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He made a fire. Of all things, he built a fire. I wonder why he built a fire. I guarantee you why he built that fire. Because it was his way of saying, hey, Peter, do you remember the last time you stood above around a fire? And when you warmed your hands? Because you can just tell Peter's reeling now. And then I love what Jesus says. Hey, Peter, I got a question for you. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. No, no, no. Second time. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Well, you know, then, well, then feed my sheep. Third time. Peter, do you love me? And you know he's exact. Lord, of course I love you. And then he said two words. Follow me. Wow. Why do you think he asked him that question three times? Think it had anything to do with the fact that he denied him? Three times? Absolutely. I think it's Jesus' way of saying, Peter, I know how this is going to play out. And I know you were crushed. And I know you wondered if I would restore you again, if I would forgive you, if there's a purpose for you. Here's what I want you to know right now. I know you love me. I know you will die for me. And I know right now when I say follow me, you're going to follow me till the day you die. I know that. Now, have some fish. Don't you love that about Jesus? 
So when you come to him and you're broken and you feel like, Lord, could you possibly forgive me? Is there possible hope for me? You know, Jesus wants to do the exact same thing. He's like, what are you talking about? You are forgiven. Just follow me. But Lord, I'd rather dwell on all the stuff I've done to hurt you. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? You just follow me. And he's still asking everybody in this room, would you just sit at my table? Just sit at my table. Because when you are my child, you are forgiven. And that is not for today. That is forever. That was the ultimate decision that Peter made, is he didn't give up. Don't give up. Anybody in this room, don't you give up. Don't you think that you've hurt Jesus so bad he can't use you? He can use you. You don't give up. There are two fires in every one of our lives. There's that fire that just hurts because of how we've hurt Jesus. There's that fire. But there's another fire. And it's that fire where Jesus is saying, you come to me and I will change your life forever because you are reconciled through me. That's what makes the resurrection the most memorable event of all time. I'm going to ask Tony to come up. And I want you to think about this for just a moment as you sit there, that you may have a decision that you need to make. And as you're sitting there, here's what I want you to think about is, first of all, Lord, is there just something that has bothered me so much because I feel like I'm unforgivable? And this is the morning you say, I got to let that go. And the other thought you may have is, Lord, I have a decision to make, and that is, I want to follow you with everything I have. I want to give it all to you. You're on one of those fires this morning. You're standing around one of them, and it's your decision. I want you to pray about that as we bow our heads and as Tony sings. And then I'll pray.